as we continue worshiping together today, siblings, I invite you to turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to the book of Jonah, the third chapter, beginning with the first verse. Let us receive together the word of God. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Get up, go to Nineveh, that great city, and proclaim to it the message that I tell you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly large city, a three days walk across. Jonah began to go into the city going a day's walk, and he cried out, Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast, and everyone, great and small, put on sackcloth. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Receive what the Spirit is saying. Thanks be to God. Let us now pray together. Loving God, you are with us. And I pray that you would come and be with us in all of the many, many places we are, physically distant from one another, but connected in your love and mercy. May your spirit be with me and may the words of my mouth, the meditation of my heart be acceptable to you, O God. For you and you alone are our strength and our redemption. Amen. Considering how much people love a good fish story, it is curious that in the whole of the three-year lectionary cycle, the book of Jonah only shows up twice, and neither of those selections includes the fish. Today's passage is certainly a key moment in the story, but the short book consisting of only four chapters is such a rich wisdom parable, layered with symbol, satire, and surprises, that it merits not only a full read, but also repeated probing reflection. Likely written in the 6th or 5th century before the Common Era, Jonah, Jonah, like any good satire, is both entertaining and sharp in its critique. The Jewish people in this period, either toward the end of the Babylonian exile or newly returned, they were struggling to navigate how best to relate as a minority population among the nations of the surrounding lands. There were tensions and concerns about assimilation and about losing their cultural and religious identity. These religious, tribal, national tensions are certainly part of the backdrop for the story of Jonah and the primary characters, the reluctant Hebrew prophet Jonah, the city and people of Nineveh, and God all play their parts brilliantly. The tension in the story is palpable from the beginning. 
God calls Jonah to cry out against the wickedness of Nineveh. Jonah's response was to flee in the opposite direction. Historical side note, Jonah is mentioned only one other place in scripture as a prophet who supported the northern kingdom, that is Israel, in the 8th century before the Common Era. Nineveh is a large city in Assyria, the nation that brutally conquered the northern kingdom during that same period. The last place that the prophet Jonah would want to go would be into the belly of the beast, Assyria. But in trying to get away, Jonah lands in the belly of another beast, the great fish provided by God, a strange comic shelter for him within the waters of chaos and danger. In that place, Jonah cries out to God and after three days and nights is returned to dry land, changed. Jonah is no longer just a prophet. Now he's also fish vomit. This is where our text for today picks up. God calls Jonah a second time. And this time Jonah doesn't run away. But he goes only about a third of the way into town and delivers his prophecy, the shortest sermon on record, just five words in Hebrew. Forty days more and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And immediately, in a kind of magic realism kind of way, the people believed in God. They started to fast. They put on sackcloth, signs of their repentance. The king of Nineveh even upped the ante. We didn't hear this part, but it happens between the verses that we heard today. The king of Nineveh ups the ante, proclaiming that all people and all the animals will fast and will be covered with sackcloth and will turn from their evil ways and their violence. And looking upon this rather absurd scene of people and their cows and sheep covered in sackcloth and ashes, God's mind changed and the calamity Jonah had announced didn't happen. Now, one might think that Jonah would be pleased that his five-word sermon had such a transformative effect on the people. What we didn't hear today, however, is that Jonah's reaction is rage and despair. He goes so far as to say he'd rather die than live with this outcome. Why might Jonah be displeased at God's mercy upon the Assyrians? Well, we know one reason. Jonah hates them. They destroyed his country in brutal and cruel ways. Jonah wants God to be gracious, merciful, slow to anger, steadfastly loving and ready to relent from punishing with him, Jonah. But not with them, the Ninevites. 
Jonah wanted, it seems, to end the story with his message of judgment being the last word. Instead, the story of Jonah ends with Jonah outside the city, pouting under a tree withered by a worm. I do have to say, it's the kind of mental image that lends itself to a Bernie Sanders meme. I just couldn't help myself. And we don't know if the people of Nineveh's repentance was sincere. We don't know if they followed through. They turned away from their evil and violence. We don't know if Jonah withers up like the tree or flourishes with a change of mind and heart. A good story doesn't necessarily tie up all the loose ends. It leaves us in the tension of the questions and ultimately of our own choices, our own reality. A good story holds the mirror up in such a way that we are confronted with our own stuff, the ways that our image does not yet reflect the image of God. In this moment, we, like the first hearers of Jonah, are in a moment of religious, tribal, and national tension. The story is a prism that shines light in multiple ways upon our lives. I'm going to highlight two. First, like Jonah, we may struggle to go where God calls us. There will be many reasons for this, but a pretty consistent reason that folk run away is that God's call requires discomfort. It requires us to enter into and even create tension. And I'm talking about God's call on all of us, that call that we receive through our baptism, to participate in God's mighty acts of salvation, to use our freedom and power that God gives us to resist evil, injustice, and oppression will mean, it will mean that we will be led into situations that are deeply uncomfortable, emotionally fraught, and dangerous, because that is what Real love requires. I'm in regular conversation with a close colleague, a white pastor, male, serving in an East Texas town, historically scarred. This town is is, has a terrible history of racial violence. He explains how folks in his area have figured out what it takes to get along. And so they do what it takes to not rock the boat. My friend has been increasingly speaking out on issues of racial justice. One result of this is loss, not only of church members and money, but friends. As he prepared for one very public act of solidarity in town, he sent his family out of town to a family member's house out of fear of violence against them. 
His experience is just one of so many examples of why people, perhaps especially white people, might sympathize with the eight white pastors and religious leaders to whom Martin Luther King Jr. responded in his letter from the Birmingham City Jail. These eight white men that MLK was responding to were upset by the boat rocking of the direct actions in Birmingham in 1963. They suggested that the peaceful protests, protests akin to, say, a prophet who walks into a city and proclaims God's judgment against evil and violence, like Jonah or Jesus, they suggest that the peaceful protests incited hatred and violence. They asked, why not negotiate instead? To this, the Reverend Dr. King responded, and I quote, you are quite right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis and foster such a tension that a community which has constantly refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks so to dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as part of the work of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. Just as Socrates felt that it was necessary to create a tension in the mind so that individuals could rise from the bondage of myths and half-truths to the unfettered realm of creative analysis and objective appraisal, so must we see the need for nonviolent gadflies to create the kind of tension in society that will help men rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. Too many persons who claim to follow Jesus are afraid of the word tension, unwilling to acknowledge tension as a divine change agent. People of any race, ethnicity, or culture can fall into this trap in various contexts. Most folks recoil at the very thought of conflict or tension. But part of the lesson of our scripture with its backdrop of historical brutality against persons of other tribes and ethnicities, part of the call of God in our time as we grapple with the ongoing scourge of systemic racism and white supremacy in our country is to recognize the ways that white churches 
white leaders, white pastors have been and continue to be unwilling to speak and act as allies in the struggle for racial justice and equity for fear of tension and conflict. We've been perfectly willing to let hatred, violence, and tension affect the lives of our siblings of color. But when even a sniff of tension gets close to us, the pattern has been defensiveness and blame directed everywhere but where it truly belongs. Those white religious leaders in 1963 never once acknowledged that the hatred and violence they claimed as the outgrowth of peaceful protest were why the protests were necessary in the first place. As King famously wrote, and I quote directly using the common parlance of the day, I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klan member, but the white moderate who is more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace which is the presence of justice. It's here that many receiving these words may be mentally scurrying about trying to locate themselves as far away from any of those people, the Klan or the white moderate, as possible. After all, everyone knows that we are bold and willing to take a stand for the sake of justice. I give thanks to God that the huge Black Lives Matter sign on Foundry's lawn and the signs in my yard here at home, my preaching and advocacy for racial justice and equity, my choice to march or publicly stand in solidarity, Foundry's investment in the journey to racial justice, that these things don't cause me, I give thanks to God, that these things don't cause me to lose half my congregation or to threaten the financial sustainability of the church or put my family in physical danger of violence. Thanks be to God for that. But let's not pretend that systemic racism doesn't exist within our congregation or that there is not a word for us in King's letter. Together, we continue to try. Thanks be to God. We continue to directly address issues and to create spaces where tension and conflict are bound to emerge among us. 
and we are setting ourselves up. And this will likely increase over the coming months as we in community begin to discern concrete tactics to implement change. My prayer is that we will not run away from the tension, but rather receive it as a sign that we might actually be doing something that matters, something real, that we might just be moving toward a positive peace that is peace with justice. I also want to say a brief word about unity. Unity is a good word, a lofty goal. I hope anyone who truly knows me would say that I deeply desire unity among the human family. But like the negative piece of which King wrote, I believe there can be a negative unity. Unity without justice, without change, without any accountability is just a word. Wishing for it or trying to manufacture a kumbaya moment will not cut it. No matter how deeply we long to just get to unity already. In our rush to regain some sense of normalcy, a reprieve from daily chaos and intentionally divisive rhetoric from the highest halls of power. I pray that we, with the privilege of choice about whether to retreat or to stay engaged, I pray that we, with the privilege of choice, will not be silent when there is the move to release the tension before the work for positive unity is done. I pray we will remember that blaming others for sowing division while not taking concrete responsibility for our own role in sustaining injustice and disunity is hypocrisy. And this leads to the other thing I want to briefly highlight. The story of Jonah challenges us all to confront our own hatred and our own tribal, political, ideological, religious, racial, regional prejudice. This is a tension as difficult as any to bear. Jonah didn't want his enemies to receive the mercy that God extended to him time and time again. Perhaps he wanted God all to himself or for only his people, his nation, those who agreed with him. Perhaps he thought God was only on his side. Can we, you and I, can we be honest enough to admit our own hatred and prejudice? 
This tension is indeed difficult and painful because it reveals just how far we are from fulfilling God's call of radical love and mercy. That's the call upon every one of us, friend and foe alike. It's God's radical love and mercy that has brought each of us through until this day, whether we perceive it or not. It's the goal of our living, really, if we want to live as truly human, to love as God loves, to be merciful as God is merciful. And this doesn't mean that we have to like everyone. It doesn't mean that we all have to agree on everything. It absolutely doesn't mean that anything goes. But it will require us to honor one another enough as children of God to not kill each other, to pray for one another, to bear and even create tension in order to move toward the goal of positive peace and unity. And as King wrote, to rise from the dark depths of prejudice and racism to the majestic heights of understanding and brotherhood. When we even try, when we commit, when we repent, as those in Nineveh, we're told that God knows and is ready to relent from punishing God is merciful. And God's not going to let us go, no matter how much we try to run away. A storm, a fish, a call, a joke, a shade shrub, a protest. God will keep showing up. We'll keep working through the tensions so that we might finally change. We can throw a tantrum about that. Or we can choose to say, thanks be to God. Amen. Amen.